Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. On 882-6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Uh, my guest in this episode has many titles. Uh, he was uh, 2019's uh, Joint Scientist of the Year. Uh, named at the 2019 WA Premier's Science Awards. Uh, he's a professor, he's at Curtin University. He leads their Space Science and Technology Centre. He is a professor of planetary science. Uh, but I think, uh, above all things, he seems to be a bit of a big kid. <laughs> so it's with great pleasure I say hello and welcome to uh, Professor Phil Bland. How are you, Phil? Good. Great to be here. Now, I think the last time that I spoke to you was um, was when you and, and others were on the hunt for a large piece of rock that had uh, apparently fallen to earth uh, close to home here in WA. You were you were on the trail. I think you were heading towards the wheat belt. Uh, there were all sorts of fairly credible reports, I think. That's what happened? Right. What yeah. happened? It was, so uh, I think that was, uh, it was a really bright fireball that yeah. people from Perth saw. And, and, and I think even maybe some pretty grainy footage. That's right. As well. It was really exciting. A lot of yeah. people recorded it on uh, on traffic cams yes. and, and in cars and stuff. Uh, and we tried to put all that together and work out where the thing had landed. Uh, and we... You know, we got really excited, and a lot of people got really excited. So we were trying to track it down because we wanted to do, you know, kind of a good job for everybody and uh, and follow this story and see if we can find the rock. We didn't find it, but uh, <laughs> but we kind of worked it out roughly where it was going to be. Uh, and it's always a great experience doing that because you meet people out in the bush, and uh, and you know some great characters. And I that's one of my favourite parts of the job. Do you think that 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 thing will ever be found? Uh, is I mean, the sort of the, are they the sorts of things that turn up eventually? They can do. I mean, yeah. so uh, so in uh, you know out in the Nullarbor, um, we found meteorites there, and there's a way you can kind of date how long they've been on the Earth's surface. Yeah, uh, and some of them have been around forty thousand years. Yeah, so uh, so it's possible that in. 20,000 years, someone in the wheat belt will finally, uh, hopefully sooner. Yeah. But, uh, but it's, it's possible a long time to wait. They, they would find it, yeah. If you had found that, what would you have done with it? Like what, what, what happens with these things? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. So, uh, so the reason why we're interested in meteorites is basically because they, um, they're the oldest rocks in existence. And, and most of them formed within you know really short time of the of the start of the solar system some even formed before the sun started to shine right? mm. and so uh, so we can work out an awful lot about kind of how planets form uh, by analyzing meteorites and what we're really yeah. interested in there is kind of you know uh, 
how normal is our solar system? Did it form, you know, in a kind of run-of-the-mill way, in which case maybe planets like it are common in the universe, or is it weird, in yeah. which case maybe it's a bit more lonely? Uh, and when you do find these things, you take it back to the lab? Do you <laughs> cut it? cut it open do you just take a little chunk of it and yeah put it uh, under a microscope what do you do with basically, it basically yeah all of that kind of stuff so uh, so there's a whole bunch of different uh, analytical techniques yeah. we can we can throw at it uh, like a long list um, but the big deal now uh, nowadays is really to try and analyze the the smallest amount of material so you yeah. can kind of you're not sort of wasting it so the yeah. people down the line you know when they invent Better techniques can come at it from a different direction. But, you know, things like you can work out how long it's been hanging around in space since it got knocked off its asteroid, how big it was, uh, which asteroid it came from. Um, whether you, could, it you, could, you could tell that. Which yeah. asteroid it's yeah it's spliced away from. Yeah, it's kind of bonkers. Wow. So, uh, so you can kind of think of it, you know, I think most people uh, who watch, you know, a forensic show on the telly, it's that kind of approach, it's yeah. sort of forensic approach to understanding rocks. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of the, the meteorites that you've found before, I mean, what what have you learned from them? Yeah, I mean, so so actually the first one that we found, actually, so I've got a couple of stories there. So the first one that we found with the uh, uh, Fireball Network Project. Yes, the I Desert remember. Fireball. Great name, by the way. It's a good name, isn't it? Yeah, I was really chuffed with that. <laughs> the Desert Fireball Network. It sounds really exciting. It does. Well, it is yeah. quite exciting. <laughs> so, um, but the first one we found there uh, actually turned out to be really wacky, and it uh, it was it could well have been part like one of the ingredients uh, that that went in and making up the Earth. So yeah. we were able to sort of work that out based on its orbit. And its composition, and uh, which was kind of just gorgeous. Yeah. So we got yeah. a really nice story out of that one, which was fascinating. Um, and then another one, which I was reminded of uh, the other day, I was over in 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 Washington for a conference, uh, and a friend of mine is at the Smithsonian Institution, uh, and they uh, curate all of the meteorites. So every year, the U.S. goes to Antarctica. And, and brings back loads of meteorites from Antarctica. And right. It's like this really useful collection for everyone in the world who studies meteorites. Is that because a lot of them land there? They land and they preserve for a long time, and the yep. ice actually kind of acts to concentrate them. Right. right? So it's sort of as it flows off the center of the continent, yep. uh, it meets a mountain, and then you know they gradually kind of get backed up and exposed. Uh, and I was down there in, uh, in 99-2000 in that season, um, and she had all of the meteorites that we found on my trip in a drawer. And so I was there, you know, with all of the meteorites that we found. And that was really, really cool. Actually. Yeah. So that was nice. Including the really big, there was this big iron meteorite that I found. I'm not supposed to <laughs> take special um, possession. Do you, get, team do you get a sense of ownership over yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, yeah, yeah. Do you get a, a, at least a... You know some contribution towards how it's named, or no, no, no special Doesn't credit. No, the the we well, couldn't call it the bland meteorite because well. <laughs> there's a different <laughs> meaning to that. But. There is. Um, uh, yeah. I quite like to uh, to introduce that in conversation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. If you were walking along, you know, say you're out in the wheat belt on the hunt for this, yep, this meteorite, um, would it look just so out of place there? What what does a meteorite actually look like? Are they? I'm I'm imagining something that I mean. Looks just looks like a very uh, almost black, yeah, dense, yep, jagged 
rock. Absolutely. So uh, so black. I mean, in uh, you know, in the bush in WA, they'll get dusty, but yep. uh, but if you brush that off, it'll be black. Yeah, might be quite a matte black. Yeah, uh, often with sort of rounded edges. It's like mm-hmm. the thing gets kind of rounded as it as it comes through the atmosphere and the surface melts. Uh, so something like that, heavier than normal, yep, and uh, and slightly magnetic. Would okay, be, uh, would be the things. And 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 they're super heavy. Uh, not super heavy, mostly not. You get pure metal ones, yeah, and they are super heavy. But yeah. the common ones are just, uh, you know, heavier than a regular rock, but mm. not super heavy. Why do you think we're so fascinated with meteorites? Obviously, you're coming at it from a pure yeah. science point of view, but I've seen TV programs where people buy these things, yes. they spend huge amounts of money just buying these I know. rocks. And there's people who, that's right, it's their kind of, you know, kind of mission in life. You know, yeah, they just collect, to collect them. them. And, and mm. I think, I mean, I think it's, I think anything that's been in space yeah. uh, is interesting. You know, people have kind of the same thing with space debris when it lands or something. Yeah. And, uh, and knowing that, you know, how, like people, you know, there's meteorites from Mars so knowing that, you know, there's a chunk of Mars in your hand that you can kind of hold. It's, it's pretty cool. It's kind of wacky. So mm. I think it's things like it's that. Mm. Uh, I think I think space really gets people. Yeah. And, and having sort of a tangible thing that you can hold rather than kind of, you know, this is what this galaxy looks like far, far away, which is still beautiful. But having mm. actually something you can hold in your hand is pretty special. Yeah. Do, do these things still blow your mind? If you're, you know, say if you're standing in front of that drawer like you described yeah. and seeing these meteorites, are, is your mind still blown by that? Absolutely. I've never got used to it yet. And, yeah. uh, and you know, the and every now and then, yeah, the people that I know, and you know, and will, uh, like, you know, I go to have a conversation with my mate at the Smithsonian. Right. Yeah, and I think okay, how nuts is that? Yeah, right? and uh, and I think you know we have a conversation about like how, how the solar system formed. Right? Of course you do, which is <laughs> right. So and this is my life. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, it does. Uh, yeah, and how'd your team go on the weekend? By the way, yeah, you know, yeah, you, you kind of that's it. You, you add that in at the end. Well, we never get into sports. No, like, no but uh, it's mostly me, Trace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Right. You must have some. Yeah, some interesting social groups. We do. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, do. I'd love to know where your fascination with science came. We'll take a break and we'll get into that after the break. This is Inspiring Stories. Professor Phil Bland is our special guest. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882-6PR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Professor Phil Bland is our special guest, uh, a scientist, particularly when it comes to gazing up at uh, things in the sky and the the stars and the planets and the asteroids and whatever else is is out there uh, in that vast expanse of space. But let's talk about uh, you uh, here on planet Earth, uh, a young Phil Bland, uh, attracted to science, but it wasn't necessarily space science, was it? it no, it was. Uh, uh, I was. I think it was always kind of natural science. So, yeah. uh, uh, so rocks and space, and uh, and I got into space stuff at about the age of eight or nine, something like yeah. that. Um, but uh, but before that, yeah, pretty much anything, pretty much uh, yeah. 
um, yeah, anything like that, anything like rocks or anything. Did you come from, and please don't take this the wrong way, but quite a nerdy family? (laughs) No, not at all. No? Uh, No. So uh, uh, we were um, uh, pretty, I mean, my mum was uh, kind of really enthusiastic about the sort of natural environment, natural world. So she'd grabbed me and my sister uh, when we went on holiday in in Wales. And uh, in the morning, so we go see the rabbits like out in the field or something like that. She was really into things like that. Um, But no, it was pretty, you know, working class. uh, Yeah. So so not much time for nerdy, (laughs) sciencey, fun. (laughs) Days at the museums and that sort of thing. Not so much. Yeah, Yeah. not so much. What was life like then where you grew up? You said working class and, and, and we're talking Derbyshire, England. Just for those not familiar with that part of the world, paint a picture for us. Yeah, so so Derbyshire's kind of like, uh, I'm trying to think. I'm not sure if, I'm trying to think of an Aussie uh, equivalent. It's the, the north part of Derbyshire is really beautiful. And yep. That's uh, called the Peak District, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of great, you know, hill country, that kind of thing. South part is, uh, is kind of now... Uh, post-industrial so yeah uh, so there's a lot of coal there yep and uh, and it was also steel for a long time so my yeah. uh, family had mostly done um, coal and steel you know and, uh, and my dad worked at uh, Rolls-Royce uh, on the shop floor so that was kind of right. the main um, you know kind of higher-end job that you could get mm. yeah. okay so part of that real northern industrial belt of England. Yeah, that kind of thing, yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, and uh, and so when I grew up, it was still, um, you know, a lot of uh, deep pits and then it was sort of open-cut mining and spoil heaps everywhere. And, uh, and then uh, um, miners strike and then, you know, uh, not many jobs. So it was kind of a, yeah, it was interesting. Um Time to grow up in Britain, actually. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and you've obviously gravitated towards uh, sciencey things. Yep. But um, marine biology was something that caught your eye early. Tell us the <laughs> yes, story about you, uh, that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so that was so I'd um, uh, I've I'd seen Jaws in the movie Jaws. <laughs> And and in in the movie, so Richard Dreyfus is the marine biologist yeah. that they bring in, and uh, and and he's got this incredible boat. He's got this beautiful boat, and it had these downward pointing lights. It just looked gorgeous. So uh, so I thought, okay, I'm a marine biologist, right? That's what I want to do. So, um, so most again, don't take this the wrong <laughs> way, but most normal people <laughs> watch that film and go, my takeaway out of that is I'm scared of sharks now, petrified of them. I'm not going in the water again for a while. And you took away from that, what a beautiful boat. I want to be a marine biologist. You've got to move past the shark, yeah. thing, right? Into kind of how can I use this yeah. in my career path? And so, uh, so I, yeah, so I kind of I remember there was a there was a careers evening uh, at school, and uh, and so I I went up to the woman and said, yeah, I want to be a marine biologist. And uh, and she said, um, so she said, oh, you know, you need a PhD for that. Yeah. And what she meant was, you're too thick, <laughs> and, uh, and so is everyone in this room, right? <laughs> There's no one from Derbyshire has ever. I mean, I'm sure people from Derbyshire have got PhDs, uh, but it really wasn't expected yeah. that you would do that, or even that you would go to uni. Yeah. I think. I think is, is that because she was still just, I suppose. 
buying into the class system and the structure, yeah. the social class systems in, in Britain at the time? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, – so the schools, you know, that I went to were, uh, were fairly rough and uh, and most people got jobs in, uh, you know, in those sort of industries. And so, mm. uh, so the, you know, teachers are really kind of preparing you for jobs in those industries. In the uh, culpits. Yeah, exactly. And so, mm. you know, you're not kind of uh, – um, uh, how can I put it? It, it? You don't, you don't really get presented with opportunities about. Mm. Oh, why don't you put in an application to Cambridge or something? Yeah, because the one, it's just not assumed that anyone is going to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you defied all those expectations, there, didn't you? Um, yeah. I, and when did you take you know gazing up at the sky and being fascinated by what you saw into something that you wanted to? Uh, dedicate at least your academic life to post school. Yeah, I, I mean, I I realised that I really like uh, space uh, when I was about eight or nine. Yeah, uh, that I did a project uh, at school. You know, sometimes you get to kind of do uh, you choose your own project and research something. And I did that. And I did space flight, and I just couldn't stop reading about it. I loved yeah. it. Uh, and then I would watch everything about that. Um, I went to uni and did uh, geology but really to be honest only because I was angry and stubborn because <laughs> I, I really didn't like that um, that you that was kind of the reality that you were presented with yeah. you know what I mean yeah. it bugged me and so yeah. uh, uh, and and even then I really didn't think at uni that um, you could have a life doing this yeah. until right at the end mm. and uh, and you know end of my uh degree and i realized that actually i really like this and, mm. and and then i did think again about doing a phd but i until then so right in the end i didn't i didn't even mm. consider it yeah who were the people that inspired you then um, to, to follow that yeah well i mean i think it, it's really important for folks to I, I think one of the things that i feel sometimes you know when i meet people uh um, members of the public is that they kind of do uh put a distance between, you know, you and them. They kind of look at a scientist and think that's like something, you know, there's no way I could do that. And uh, and I, you know, the decisions that I made in my life were not because I was sort of especially smart or anything. Like I say, it was just, you know, I realized that was the thing I really wanted to do. And I think when, you know, and I was stubborn and angry, right? <laughs> and so, uh, so I think if it's something that you love that you really want to do, then you can be, you can be good at it, yeah, and uh, and do it, and don't be held back. And yeah, if there's a message, then uh, I mean, in terms of so, in terms of, I guess your question was, uh, um, you know, what inspired me? Yeah, I mean, was it people? was it the the celebrity star astronauts that, that were going to the moon and, and it was. was it people like that there was uh, so there's uh, it was Carl Sagan yeah and uh, and uh, the the show they did Cosmos yeah and I loved that and it completely blew me away uh, and then it was yeah it was uh, the Apollo I was born after well I was I was born just in time so I was three months old when uh, Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon so I can say that I saw it uh, I don't think there's any surviving brain cells from, uh, from that but I did see it uh, so uh, but it was that and kind of watching you know the the history of that and the astronauts that did it and then uh, and then Carl Sagan, especially, were the yeah. sort of inspiration for yeah. wanting to do more of that. Were you an avid reader of, of science fiction at the time? Because 
I was, yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, so I think that it was kind of all wrapped up in that sort yeah. of package, actually, yeah. I mean, as, as people who are fans of that genre will tell you, you know, all of the things, the technological breakthroughs that we take for granted now, you know, mobile phones, the internet, uh, even, you know, some of the technology that is used for surveillance and all that sort of stuff that it was all flagged so much decades ago, wasn't it's it? It's really interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it is really interesting to look back on some of that. I was reading the mm. thing uh, the other day about kind of the history of science. And, yeah. uh, and I didn't realize this, but, uh, but um, Kepler, uh, so, you know, contemporary Galileo and, uh, and, you know, the, one of the original astronomers uh, and one of the first scientists actually did write uh, the, one of the first works of science fiction. So he almost def- he started that as yeah, well yeah. as all the other stuff that he did, yeah. Yeah, which is kind of bonkers. Yeah, it's not all the work of imagination, is it? It's, no. I mean, some of it is, but a I, lot of it has come true. It's lovely, and it's lovely when uh, when an author uh, or a or a scriptwriter, you know, when they when they incorporate the science into it. Yeah. Uh, there's a show that I really love uh, called The Expanse. I don't know if you've ever seen no. any of that. Uh, or uh, and the books as well are fantastic. But that's like it's kind of like human future in space yep. in uh, in three or four hundred years time, mm. uh, and it's gorgeous because it's sort of technically really really um, well done. I yeah, really like that. All right, we need to take another break. Uh, after that, I want to ask you about uh, what the factors were that brought you here to Perth on the other side of the world. Uh, this is inspiring stories. Professor Phil Bland is our special guest. Eight eighty two six br. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6BR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Professor Phil Bland is our special guest uh, in this episode. We're talking, uh, well, all things uh, science and particularly space science. Um, you finished your university, well, that first phase of university. Anyway, yep. you're in Manchester, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, what then led you to come all the way here to the other side of the world? Yeah. So, uh, so uh, after uni, uh, I had a really good time at uni. It was great time with me in yeah. Manchester. Loads of good bands. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. You were you would have been right in the sweet spot of sort of twenty four hour party people. Absolutely, type. it was fantastic. Yeah. So uh, I didn't have any money. <laughs> and, uh, but a lot of hazy memories. Yeah, it was yeah. awesome. So, uh, so I really I couldn't do a PhD straight away because yeah. the bank didn't let me. Uh, <laughs> and so I did. I actually got a job as a curator of meteorites. Um, that sounds a, like such a made up job. <laughs> so, uh, um, so, curator of meteorites. Curator of meteorites. Yeah, at, uh, at the Open University in the UK. And right. I did that for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, and so you're literally just collecting them, putting them on show. It's basically so that was a whole bunch of meteorites that they'd got from uh, the Sahara and also mm-hmm. Antarctica, and you're kind of classifying them, working out what they're made of, yep. and then making them available for other scientists. And okay. so that was the idea. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years and did my PhD uh, as well. Uh, and then came out of Oz briefly. I got a, a short fellowship at WA Museum. Yeah. Uh, back to the UK. Um, and then um, uh, in London for 10 years uh, and then here. Yeah. So it's, it's taken a while to... 
yes to end up here it did it yeah. took a little while yeah, yeah. and uh, and so i was in uh, london at imperial college uh, for 10 years what i did there it was uh, for a lot of that time um on a royal society fellowship and they're fantastic. So it's so Royal Society is the oldest scientific society in the world. Yep. Uh, and you you basically get, you know, eight years to do just whatever you just fun stuff. Mm. It's really kind of pure research because mm. that's kind of what their raison d'etre is, mm. uh, and a bit of spending money. And the great thing is that you get invited to all of the posh dues at the Royal Society. Mm. So it's you, you know, these sort of young pups who get one of these eight-year things. And then all the fellows of the Royal Society who are these sort of titans of research, you know, um, and uh, who turned out none of them have egos and they're just really excited to hear about what you're well, doing. That's, which that's was, refreshing. Which yeah. was gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. So that was a great experience. Yeah, I bet. And when you say getting to do lots of fun things... What is a fun thing to you? Yeah, so so a fun thing for me was uh, was actually setting up the Desert Fireball Network so that we could uh, um, track meteorites coming through the atmosphere. Yeah, yes, um, which is a, a worldwide network now, isn't it? Yes, it, it covers most of the the globe. Yeah. So so how does that actually work? So basically, so what we do is we have uh, um, cameras. Uh, Kind of mini observatories out in the bush. Yeah, each one can see the whole sky. It's got a fisheye lens. Uh -huh. uh, if uh, if you imagine you've got kind of three of them and a fireball crossing the sky uh, above them, by comparing where it is on this image versus that image versus the other, you can triangulate it. Mm -hmm. You kind of work out its orientation in the atmosphere, and then plot it back to get where it comes from in the solar system and plot it forward to work out where it lands and. Uh, and so uh, that's become, you know, it went really well in Australia. And then colleagues are kind of excited about doing that yeah. uh, in other places in the world. So. So, so who puts all these cameras in? Yeah, so uh, my team uh, do an awful lot of it. Uh, yeah. We've not got, uh, we're a pretty small posse of people, but, uh, uh, but we've put in uh, about like 150 of these now. Yeah, uh, right. In, uh, and 50 in Oz and then about 100 elsewhere in the world so so they're just gazing up looking for these streaks of fiery light yeah in the sky and uh, and then uh, you know trying to and working out where they come from it gives us a feel for kind of you know what is hitting the earth you know mm. uh, so it's not just can we find the rocks it's kind of uh, um, how much stuff is hitting the earth where mm. does all that come from um, you know what is the rate of impacts that we mm. get? Uh, is any of it kind of concentrated in particular streams of stuff? So it gives us a lot of info. Yeah. yeah. And I, I suppose most of it doesn't end up hitting the earth, does it? it, it no. gets to the atmosphere and burns up. And burns up, exactly. So uh, yeah. so most of what people see, you know, when they see a fireball on a, on a really nice night and they get a good one, uh, mostly they don't land. It's only like maybe 5% yeah. land. Is that a bittersweet thing for you? Yeah. Uh, the bittersweet thing is that everyone else in my team has seen better ones than me. Right? <laughs> so, uh, so I've never seen a really, really good one. I mean, and literally, it's at the level of like you know, we were out in the Nullarbor searching for one uh, one time, and uh, and everyone turned in one direction and there was actually one in the daytime it was so bright they could see it in the daytime wow uh, and i was looking the other way and i missed it and <laughs> you know what is that and so uh 
or it'll be close enough so people will hear sonic booms from them. And yeah. I've never experienced that. And yeah. I, I'm, you know, what is that about? Right. You, you have had some wins though. There's a great photo of you yeah. out uh, in Lake Eyre. You're you're covered in mud. Yes. Um, you're there on a four wheeler. And again, I said at the top, you're like a big kid at heart. I yes. think you know, on show in that photo because uh, you'd obviously found something that you'd been looking for, um, and you were pretty excited about it. I was very excited. Tell about us that. about that. Yeah. So that was uh, so. This was one uh, we tracked it uh, to where it had landed in Lake Air. Yeah. Uh, one of my colleagues did a flight over it. You know, you can get those tourist flights over the lake. Yeah. And uh, and so he'd seen, and there was in this kind of splat in the middle of the lake. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously dry at this so point. So it, that's yeah. right. And so uh, uh, so then we had to spend. We it, we took about another month to work out how to get there and to talk to the local indigenous community and make sure you know it was all right with them and everything, and uh, and work out you know the health and safety of how do you get in the middle of the lake on. Uh, uh, because Lake Eyre isn't, it, you know, there's Australian salt lakes that have got a decent crust and you can drive yeah. out in them. Yeah. Lake Eyre, it's more like kind of icing sugar on 10 mm. meters of mud, right? Mm. So uh, uh, so then we had to get um, quad bikes and we worked out that was the best way of doing it. And then the university had closed, so I couldn't buy a quad bike. Uh, so in the end, what I did was, oh, no, maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> we can edit well, that what later. Well, what I did was, was, uh, was basically, uh, you know. We to, might not, but anyway, the, keep going. <laughs> got the corporate card and went to the quad bike shop and just kept hitting it until, uh, until we paid for the quad. Because uni, you know, I couldn't arrange it. What, is it, what does a quad bike cost when you buy it out there? That was 11 That was 11 11,000. Yeah, 11,000. Did you keep it afterwards? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we've still, still got, got that. Yeah. So it's Curtin University property that we, yeah. use, we use for searching for meat rights. Yeah. So it's all above board. and uh, and But, yeah, that, I, I, there's probably a rule that I broke there yeah. to, uh, to do that. Oh, well. But they'd all gone home for Christmas, right? Because exactly. like Christmas, New, yeah. New Year, uh, you know. And uh, but it was awesome. And uh, and we would uh, there was a couple of members of the uh, local uh, indigenous community that that were acted as guides for us, and they mm. were fantastic. Mm. Uh, and it was just an awesome experience. It was kind of just two and a half days of uh, of madness because the rain was coming in. And if it had come in, we'd have been stuffed. We'd never have found You'd it. You'd never find it. No. It'd be one of those might be found in yeah. 20,000 years, might not. And uh, and and finding it, you know, that's a great win for on the science side. And it was also kind of real validation yeah. uh, for the project. Because all these people, yeah. you know, my folks who have done such a good job of working out, you know, how all of this stuff works, you never really know have you done it right until yeah. you actually find the rock. So, mm. uh, so that was great. So you're out there hooning around Lake Eyre on your possibly illegitimately acquired <laughs> quad bike after maxing the corporate group. Yes, there was, there was a rule that was bent. And you, you find it just before the rains come. Yes. Um, and then what do you do with it? So, yeah, so then, uh, so it's when we uh, find a, so meteorites are uh, the property of the Commonwealth. Yeah. Uh, so then we, um, you know, we, Talk to so the local representative in uh, in uh, WA in South Australia is the the, the museum. Yeah. So then you you know we inform the museum that okay we found a meteorite, uh, and they say okay that's great you know because we've got a good relationship with all of those uh, museums then uh, we basically loan it 
to do uh, analyses on it and classify it and work out where it is and where it came from and all of that sort of mm. stuff. So, uh, so that's what happened after that. Yeah, right. And is that is that your proudest discovery um, to date? I would say, in terms of in terms of an actual meteorite, yes. Yeah, yeah, that would be uh, that would be the proudest one. Yeah, that was awesome. One of the other things that you've been uh, instrumental in is uh, is getting this CubeSats uh, program going as yeah. well. We need to take a break. I want to ask you that after the break, though, and then I might ask you for some thoughts about the future. Okay. This is Inspiring Stories. Professor Phil Bland is our special guest. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Our special guest is the 2019 Joint WA Scientist of the Year, Professor Phil Bland. Uh, Phil, we talked about the Desert Fireball Network. Again, great name. Um, CubeSats is also a pretty good name as well. That's another project, a fairly newish one, that you're heavily involved with. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, this was a project that started a couple of years ago now. Um, we, in my group, we've got some staff engineers who've done awesome things. Like a couple of them have, um, were involved in building hardware that's now on the surface of Mars and Titan, right? On on their uh, rovers that are cruising on landers, around there? Or? Yes, yeah, right. on landers. And, uh, um, and then, you know, all the folks who've done the stuff for Desert Fireball Network, that's all yep. really good engineering as well. So what we thought was, well... Um, why don't we have a go at building our own small spacecraft? And there's these really small ones called CubeSats, which is now uh, quite a popular kind of form factor, is how we describe it, um, for small satellites. And uh, and so we started that initially as an honours project for yep. uh, Kurt in honours students. The students we got were absolutely awesome. Um, they've now all gone on to be PhDs in our group. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and we've got, you know, additional staff scientists on that. Um, and we've basically built our own from scratch, small spacecraft. It's gorgeous. These, these folks, my team have done an incredible job of it. Uh, and that one will be going up, uh, on a, um, to the space station in August, September, something like that next year. Okay. And it'll get blipped out of the space station. Uh, and then there'll be a, WA spacecraft in orbit around the world. Around Fantastic. The Earth, which would be great. And these things are quite small? Yeah. They're sort of shoebox That size? kind of size. So, yeah. yeah. So, like, so a cube, uh, the basic unit, the smallest unit is 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters. Right. Uh, and That's then, like, a, like a Rubik's cube, It is, exactly. It? Yeah. Really small. And then yeah. it's kind of how much... Um, engineering can you yeah. pack into that? And what's yeah, what's what's in that? Yeah, so what we've done, what my folks have done, is really get all of the spacecraft systems, including the power, batteries, everything, uh, in uh, in the two point five centimeters of that volume, yeah. uh, which leaves kind of quite a lot of space then for uh, for a payload, which yeah. is you know which might be a camera or something like that. So most folks um, that have built these things before, that whole volume is taken up by the spacecraft systems itself, there's yeah. no room for to do anything interesting. So, yeah. uh, uh, so my folks, yeah, we've uh, they've done an awesome job of that. Um, that first one that we'll put up will be just probably one of those cubes. Yeah, and then we'll put up what we call a three U one, which is kind of three of those, and you've got mm. much more room for 
uh, payload, like bigger camera or communication mm. system. Uh, so they're data gathering devices. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so the idea is, you know, you, what you try and do is really get as close to the capabilities of a large satellite, but in a small package. Mm. And then it's a lot cheaper to launch them um, and uh, and they're cheaper to build. And, so that's and what are they going to be sent out to, to look for or to measure or to analyze? Yeah, so, so for us, uh, there's a couple of things that we want to be able to do with it. Uh, if we've got, if we can do this and build these things and, uh, and, and, and show that it's a reliable system, um, then what we hope is that um, this will be kind of a platform, a satellite platform that um, WA companies can, uh, mm. can use and benefit from. Um, that is becoming quite a common thing around the world now, that companies mm. will kind of have their own bespoke use for a small satellite you know, like ten small satellites, which is, mm. it sounds bonkers, but uh, yeah, but that's becoming quite a common thing. Like, if you want basically your own communications network and yeah. it's secure, then then folks will do that. Um, so that's one of the things, and we kind of uh, and I imagine there'd be an enormous market for that. There is, it's huge. Yeah, and so uh, you know, like probably hundreds of companies and uh, and you know hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in that. So yeah, I think if we can do that and uh, and bring that to WA that'd be really nice and uh, and then for us as uh, on the science side um, we're going to be um, our goal is to develop that to uh, um, a small satellite capable of going to the moon and, yeah. uh, and a moon mission in yeah. four or five years time yeah. it's a it's so amazing how um, you know in the past we might have had to send actual people to the moon now we don't have to do we we yep. can send these little robotic devices there and and have them come back or, or at least send the information back and well there's something beautiful and romantic about putting a, an actual human uh in yeah. these places but um, we don't necessarily need to anymore do we? we well it's actually i mean it's a really interesting time to be honest because yeah. uh, the u.s now and uh, and isa and and china are, are um gearing up to send humans back to yes. the moon and and that's becoming a really big thing and kind of um, you know, exploring the moon again mm. on the way to Mars. Uh, U.S. is investing heavily in that. Australia yep. has just signed up to to join them in that effort, uh, which is really exciting. Yep. So what we're trying to do really is be part of that mm. and uh, and 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 have do uh, work with NASA. We're working with NASA on a um, on this small spacecraft that will do. Useful stuff for them, yeah. Um, in terms of delivering science for them, that, yep. that is interesting for them. Yep. Uh, and in return for that, they're going to hopefully fly it there for us for free, which is uh, that'd be very nice because nice, nice. some of the costs involved in space exploration are as almost as mind blowing as the distances that we yes. talk about, aren't they? So flying it <laughs> for free is a nice one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm chuffed about that. Yes. The, the I suppose in recent years the um, the introduction of some of the the privately phenomenally wealthy people like you know Elon Musk Jeff Bezos those sorts of characters yeah um, you know I suppose in the past it's been countries who have been leading the charge into space now you've got these individuals does that worry you because you know they might have different motivations to countries and their and national space programs do you think they're all doing this for their, you know, for the for the betterment of the of, of planet Earth, or I think, do you question I, I, their motivations? It's an interesting question. Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, I'm absolutely fine with uh, with 
you know, industry getting involved in yep. space. I think it's the only way uh, that it'll have kind of a sustainable future, really. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, so I'm really excited about Yeah. And those industries are most are partnering with uh, with the major agencies in most cases, which, yeah. is, uh, which is great. Um, I think certainly in some cases as well, you know, uh, um, those companies do have um, – it's like a kind of a higher purpose as well, you know. Yeah. When, uh, um, you meet, you know, I meet kind of leaders in the space industry side, um, and buried under the sort of bottom line, a, a lot of them are really geeking out about it. You know, yeah. tremendously excited. I yeah. remember a thing. Um, Elon Musk um, was he? So he um, hired and then refurbished. Uh, um, one of the launch pads at Cape Canaveral. And it's actually the launch pad that um, was used for the Apollo missions yeah, and also for the first shuttle launch. And it had fallen out of use, and uh, and that was the one that he wanted. It wasn't the right, best one to do. It was, yeah. it was knackered. Um, but that was the one he wanted. He took his little boy up to the top of it and uh, and was just showing him um, what it was and telling him the stories of, of how it had been used before. And I, th- and I looked at it, and I thought, you know, um, speaking as a dad, I'm, you know, yeah. I, uh, he wants to live in a world where humans are going to Mars, right? Yeah. He wants his boy to grow up in a world where that's a reality. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I really like that. Yeah. And so I think I want, you know, I want folks to grow up in WA and, uh, and get a union WA and know they can work, help build space missions yeah and they can get jobs in a space industry and that that is a real future for them yeah yeah having said that knowing what you know about mars and our solar system and it's such a fascination and the idea of living on mars would you do it uh i would if, if you could come back if i could come back because <laughs> i love my kids you know yeah. and so, uh, so i want to be able to come back yeah but um but yes absolutely yeah, I think Will it happen in your lifetime? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah? Well, you know, I mean, yeah, assuming, assuming I live to an average age. But, um, but yes, Depends how close so. to the coal pit you were when you grew up in Derbyshire. Exactly. <laughs> well, we look forward to it. Maybe we'll get you in again once uh, we've achieved that landmark. That'll be lovely. Thanks so much for your time. Phil, really appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR, this time with Professor Phil Bland from Curtin University. Everyone has a story to tell. This one, of course, brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Bower and O'Day. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.